Hi, I'm Lucas. And I'm Brian. And this is the Quacks Podcast. Hey, you guys. Welcome to the podcast. Hope life in this post-apocalyptic world is treating you well out there, and it's good to be back. Now, today my guest is Kyle Mamounis. He has a PhD in nutritional science, and he's doing some postdoc work in biochemistry. So he's very knowledgeable about cellular biology and, and how cells make and use energy. So I wanted his uh, perspective on keto. Now, funnily enough, I thought he would be quite negative on it, but he actually presents a very balanced view and kind of gives both sides of the story. Uh, the interview, it also gets a little complicated at times in the details. So some people, I don't know, they might find it boring or whatnot when we kind of get into the nitty gritty. But if you are curious about what keto does to your body, this is definitely the episode for you. Now, stay tuned until the end for a quick announcement on the podcast. Enjoy. Kyle, welcome to the podcast, man. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? Doing pretty good. So I'm excited to have you on. We're going to talk about keto, which I've mentioned a couple times in past recordings. Uh, I don't think I've been the most positive on it, uh, but I haven't totally dumped on it, which I think we might do today. Uh, but anyway, tell, tell us a little bit about you because I know you have a PhD in I think uh, nutritional sciences you said and you're working on some postdoc stuff. So what are you up to these days? Yeah, I did my PhD at Rutgers University um, in an endocrinology lab but on a nutritional project with uh, it was a project uh, trying to see the difference between saturated fats and polyunsaturated fats with hypothalamic inflammation in mice. And now I'm at University of Central Florida doing not really medical stuff, but like real basic protein biochemistry. Okay. That's kind of interesting. What you, Protein biochemistry, what are you looking for? Uh it's it's really uh it's really niche in the biochemistry world so i'm in this lab that i've never even heard of this before i started working on it but um there's bacterial proteins that have covalent modifications of usually two amino acids and they get cross-linked and it makes a vitamin like part of the protein um so instead of most proteins that use vitamins as cofactors and things like that, they'll have a pocket where the vitamin will interact with the protein and then they'll do the reaction. So these proteins um, do this without using any extra cofactor. They just have a second protein that gets expressed and modifies uh, one protein to have a cofactor-like uh, part of it. And you can study it. You can do a lot with them because... Um, as most people know, vitamins have colors, you know, they're usually like yellowish, reddish. Yeah. Uh, so these proteins have those colors, um, cause the, the, the way the electrons are in the cofactor are similar to in vitamins. And so sometimes in their reactions, they'll change color, like they'll get reduced and they'll become clear or even, uh, change color and then go back as they're cycling through the reactions. You can study a lot of things that way with spectrophotometry. Wow, that's kind of trippy. Well, let's let's get into the keto diet, all right? So, all right. so it's been kind of a craze, obviously, the last few years. And before we started, I thought we should kind of lay the foundation of what the keto diet is, uh, because there are a few different keto diet variations out there, which people might not know about. Uh, but but I think they all kind of share this common theme of lowering the amount of carbohydrates you're eating and and eating a high amount of fat. Uh, but there's there's four different variations. So the first variation is just the standard ketogenic diet. It's very low carb, uh, moderate protein, high fat. It's typically 75% fat, 20% protein, and 5% carbs. The second type of ketogenic diet is called cyclical, and it basically involves a period of higher carb refeeds, uh, something like you know you have five days where you're on the keto diet and then two days where you have a lot of carbs. Uh, the third type is the targeted ketogenic diet. That diet, it allows you to add carbs kind of around workouts. And then the fourth is a high-protein ketogenic diet. Uh, this is It's very similar to the standard diet we just talked about, but it includes more protein. So the ratio is more like 60% fat, 35% protein, and 5% carbs. So anyway, I, I think we should start talking about what 
your body, what your body goes through when they're on keto. So I don't know, maybe you could kind of just give us a rundown. If somebody goes low carb, like what happens inside their body when they cut those carbs out? Uh, yeah. So depending on how much and how fast they just run down their glycogen supply. So everything's pretty normal for, I guess, a day or so. And then once you run down that glycogen supply, you flip the switch with the liver where it starts doing a lot of uh, gluconeogenesis with proteins. That's where they turn proteins into carbohydrates, basically? Yeah, amino acids. Okay. And that starts getting exported uh, mostly. So um, tissues that are more flexible, like skeletal muscle, they'll start to rely more on fatty acids. So their glucose uptake will be downregulated so that tissues like red blood cells in the brain can continue to receive what's left. So it starts, your body sort of immediately in that early period goes through a kind of like a triage, like a medical triage, but for your cells, for who gets the, the dwindling glucose. And then your uh, adipocytes start getting stimulated to release free fatty acids to send out to skeletal muscle and all these other tissues that are now using more fatty acids than before. Okay, so you run out of glycogen, and for the first day or two, it's everything's normal. You're just running on your stored carbohydrates, and then your fat cells start to release fat to the different areas in your body to use that as fuel? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like if you had you know, a car with two, two uh, motor systems, like an electric and a gasoline engine, hmm. and it had a computer in there that kept the power output the same, and as it senses, say the, um, you know, cause batteries don't store as much energy as like a tank of gasoline. As the battery power starts to go down, the computer would tell the gas motor to start, you know, revving up. So it's kind of like that, um, with the fat metabolism as the glucose and glycogen start running down. So it's a, it's a continuation. Gotcha. So I, I think most people who are kind of pro ketogenic diet would be like, this is the point, right? This is what we want. Mm -hmm. We want fat to be burning. So what's what's wrong with fat burning? Uh, it's <laughs> I know um, that's a big question. Yeah. the The problem is is it's it's a it's a question that's highly reliant on the framework that you're thinking of it in. So just linguistically, it sounds like a good thing to burn fat because most people think of that as I'm losing weight or I'm losing fat weight, like ever since, you know, anything you've ever seen, in, you know, in the 1980s and the 1990s and sure. ads like fat burning, you know, for exercise or, you know, f fat burning br drugs, whatever, the, like the ephedra and stuff like that. Yeah. There's kind of fat burning and then there's fat burning in the sense that we're always burning fat to a certain extent. Um, and like I said, the different tissues can dial up and down their ratios of using fats versus carbohydrates and some tissues are much more flexible than others and some are not flexible at all in the situation of just kind of pushing that as much as you can towards fat burning so some people think that, you know what you're burning in terms of energy substrate is neutral like it doesn't okay. matter, you know, like calories in, calories out. Yeah. And then some people think it's better to be burning fat than carbohydrates because they think carbs are sort of inherently, uh, I don't know, toxic or cause insulin resistance or something or whatever that is. And then some people think it's better to burn carbohydrates as much as possible. And those, those kinds of people more than anything are just using a different vocabulary and framework. So people that prefer carbohydrates they would look at things like lower cortisol. So you don't need cortisol to do that metabolism. And you have a relationship with glucose and insulin where it, it goes up, you know, your insulin goes up when you have a meal with glucose and then it comes down and it, it's kind of this cyclical thing. And they see that as good. And also it produces more carbon dioxide while it gets oxidized. And some people talk about that being a good thing, that your respiratory quotient being higher is better. Uh, and then the people that think that fat is better think that basically insulin is bad at any amount. So they want their mm -hmm. insulin to be as low as possible all the time. Um, and sometimes they kind of confuse low insulin or a non-stimulated insulin system 
with insulin sensitivity or insensitivity hmm. because you know if they're not consuming any carbohydrate there's really no way for them to practically know what the, their sensitivity is to insulin because they're not using the system so they would have to like you know take a glucose tolerance test or something like that <clears throat> which they wouldn't want to do because they drink sugar <laughs> which <laughs> which is bad and yeah and and there's there's really simplistic uh, benefits that some people will say, like, for example, one molecule of a fatty acid has more energy than one molecule of glucose. Therefore, it's better. Um, something like that, which really doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but they're kind of thinking, oh, this is a better fuel. So, yeah, it's it's a very – the reason why sometimes when fads or very – a diet it can exist for a really long time, like something like vegetarianism. The reason why it can exist for such a long time is because there's some kind of stability in the framework for the people following it. If it was really easy to come to consensus on this stuff, then you wouldn't have a prolonged dual factions on it. Hmm. So it's kind of uh, as much of a social phenomenon as anything else. Interesting. So, I mean, you mentioned cortisol and that was kind of always what I heard, which was, you know, if you have carbs in your diet, that will lower the amount of cortisol in your system and that will make your metabolism better. And if you don't have carbs in your diet, then you're going to get more cortisol and that will actually uh, decrease insulin sensitivity over time. Um, so you're, you're what are you kind of saying that these, these two kind of dueling, uh, mindsets, like one is more right than the other, or they're kind of equal or I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I see cortisol as a relatively, um, emergency level hormone, something that is, you know, is necessary for certain cellular processes at a very low level under normal circumstances, very, very low. And then if you have to go a certain amount of time fasting, it'll ramp up to mobilize uh, energy stores outside of just the medium-term glycogen ones that we were talking about before. And I see insulin as a more mm, consistent cyclical thing that you would expect to go up and down during mealtimes on a regular basis. And people that are more in the keto camp would see it the other way. They would see that cortisol and the things that it does, which is gluconeogenesis and liberation of fatty acids from adipocytes, is what you want to have as kind of a tonic level thing happening all the time. And that actually insulin is what you want to keep really, really low because that makes you fat or something like that. I mean, is there any basis to that, to their belief? There is a basis in the sense that a the insulin system is pretty much always messed up when people become obese or have diabetes, any of the types of diabetes. It, it's really a question, it's like an ontological question of whether carbohydrates stimulating the insulin system causes insulin insensitivity and that just engaging with that system at all is going to lead to those outcomes or whether there's some other factor that causes that system to get messed up. And then, you know, the, the, the person with these symptoms, uh, you know, gains weight and maybe they can actually lose weight by cutting carbs out of their diet. Um, whether that's addressing the primary cause or that just happens to take away something that they're now sensitive to because of some third thing. Okay. So basically they could have a point is what you're saying. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the strongest point that keto people have is making a kind of like paleo or ancestral argument that at least for some populations for some amount of time, there was perhaps limited availability of carbohydrates in the diet, people in really northern climates and stuff like that. That's interesting because, you know, one of the things I see in the discussions about keto is kind of there's this like mythical unicorn of someone who can do keto for many, many years where it seems like most people after a couple years, two, three years, they, 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 they want carbs again, you know, they crave carbs and so they get back on carbs. But I, I don't know if that's true. Are there characteristics of people who might be 
you know, good on a keto diet for many, many years? Uh, so that's, so the, the kind of philosophical idea of populations that are probably, you would think evolutionarily keto adapted because of their environment, like Arctic populations, especially in the past before trade, um, that that's the best piece of sort of theoretical evidence for keto. But one of the worst things for keto is when those populations started actually being studied. And as far as I have seen all of the kind of specific genetic adaptations that those populations have are in the opposite direction of being keto adapted. So they'll have, for example, uh, genetic variants that make them more efficient at doing gluconeogenesis hmm. and, uh, things like that. So like I was just reading is I, a couple of years ago, I actually reviewed a paper for the journal of, um, it's ancestral health, Jivo. Do you know that journal? No, I've never seen it. It's associated with the ancestral health symposium. So do you know, Amber O'Hearn? I do not. She's a keto proponent. Yeah, she's pretty popular in the like the Twitter sphere, and she's a really big proponent of keto. And she wrote a paper talking about evidence. It's called Evidence on Chronic Ketosis in Traditional Arctic Populations. She's kind of she goes through and tries to explain why it is that uh, Arctic peoples are actually more resistant to ketogenesis than regular people. So they took a bunch of Arctic peoples and fasted them, and they actually take longer to start producing measurable amounts of ketones than regular, you know, standard American diet eating people. And these are studies from a long time ago, like in the 20th century. Some of them are in the early 20th century. And then in the later, yeah, very interesting, uh, counterintuitive. And then in the later 20th century, when they had molecular biology, that's when they started finding these genes that I was <clears throat> talking about, such as um, there's like a CYP1A variant. There's a, there's a variant in the CPT the carnitine palmitoyl transferase system, basically a bunch of um, genetic differences that make them uh, resistant to getting into ketosis and to be able to simultaneously do high levels of gluconeogenesis and traditional beta oxidation of fatty acids without producing ketones <clears throat> longer on you know, a restricted, a carb-restricted, or even a fasted situation than a normal person on a regular, you know, medium or high carbohydrate diet. Okay. So, so you would think that these Northern peoples would be better, you know, they become keto faster, but actually they become keto slower. They're better at creating carbohydrates from proteins than they are at burning fat. And that would, that's like totally opposite of what you would think you'd, so what would that mean that people, uh, in tropical climates basically are, you know, become keto the fastest? <laughs> Is that what that means? Uh, that would be consistent with these results. I have never looked to see if there's been like a genetic or <clears throat> um, a uh, you know global measurement of these things. It, this was just something that people assumed. Okay, so there's these people and they eat all kinds of whale blubber and and meat all year round, and they have extremely limited access to carbohydrates. So we're going to expect them to be in ketosis. And to go into ketosis very easily if they're not already from fasting and things like that, and it didn't happen. So I don't know about uh, I don't know about tropical peoples. I just know that the whatever they were calling kind of the control population, like just say your average American in 1950 or 1970, was actually more fell into ketogenesis faster hmm. than the average Inuit. Yeah, that's interesting. So I have I have this theory about keto, and maybe you tell me what you think. Um, a lot of times we see that those on a keto diet, they do really well when they first start, extremely well. You know, they feel better, they have more energy, they lose weight, they sleep better. It's like all upside. But over time, you know, a lot of those people stop, stop losing weight. They start getting cold and anxious and they find they, they find carbohydrates like intolerable you know if they eat any carbs at all they gain weight rapidly mm-hmm. so my theory is that when they first started keto they get off grains and sugar and this causes a die-off in their gut of bad bacteria it shifts the balance in the microbiome and they start you know feeling and doing a lot better 
but they think they're doing better because of the evil carbohydrates that are, you know, that they're now avoiding. I actually remember in a Joe Rogan podcast, I think it was with Jordan Peterson. At one point, Peterson says uh, that carbs actually look like poison, you know, to him. <laughs> but this isn't true. It's actually a shifting in the gut bacteria, which is helpful. Um, over time, you know, the low carb and the lack of glycogen raises cortisol and they start getting hypothyroid and metabolic syndrome. Um, and this kind of accounts for the, the progressive intolerance of carbohydrates because as they get, you know, more and more broken down from the cortisol metabolically, any carbohydrates are going to cause like water retention, lack of energy, weight gain, all that. Mm-hmm. So really, maybe the solution for metabolic disease is not so much keto, but antibiotics instead, or uh, herbal antibiotics. And, and interestingly enough, most of the herbs and supplements that help blood sugar levels are antibiotic in nature. Like, you know, berberine is one of the most powerful ones, and it's it's an antibiotic that is as powerful as uh, rifaximin, uh, an antibiotic mm-hmm. for SIBO. So I don't know. What do you think of that theory? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um either a die-off or just, yeah, I guess it would be a die-off or maybe an extreme lowering of the just metabolic activity of whatever kind of bacteria is probably producing endotoxin in the small intestine. It'd be interesting to see, I know there's a lot of postprandial endotoxemia studies out there. Yeah. And generally people that are you know, obese or diabetic or have heart disease have higher postprandial endotoxemia than healthy comparison. Yeah. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see, you know, take a group of people that go on keto, uh, to lose weight, lose weight and do, you know, a a postprandial endotoxemia measurement on them before the dietary change and after and see if, you know, there's a big difference. I would, I would expect that's probably it because that would be like taking a big burden off of the system all of a sudden. Uh, almost like a gastric bypass, you know, it's like they're cutting out this thing that was weighing down their metabolism, all of this bacterial products that are getting absorbed across their intestines into their blood. Hmm. Well, and, and another thing I noticed, though, I mean, just to take a contrary position is some people are like dying of insulin resistance, you know, and they go on a keto diet and they lose 50 pounds or whatever, and they have all kinds of symptoms like, you know, neuropathy and exhaustion go away. So it, it can really improve your life in some way. But I don't know, can keto be healthy, do you think? Or is it healthy for just a little while? I don't know. I don't know if uh, there's clearly got to be some kind of, you know, individual uh, interpersonal difference in how well people do on keto. And like some people, you know, uh, we've all heard of anecdotal stories of people that just crash within a year and then there's people that claim to have been doing it for 10 years um so i don't know if it's that maybe the person who crashes is starting from uh, some type of health issue and the person that lasts longer starts off healthier or if the that second person is more suited to that kind of a diet or a little bit of both it's one of those difficult things because I, i don't i don't know that many keto people right now but I know that they're, it's a fanatical kind of group and vegetarians are also fanatical and, or I should really just say vegans <laughs> and those people have all kinds of health problems and it doesn't seem to ever stop the movement. So there's always new people like there will be these influencers that are around for five or 10 years telling people about their great health transformation, doing this diet. And then a really high number of these people get caught cheating on their diet. Uh, I'm talking about vegans. Yeah. Um, and, or they'll have some kind of, you know, Oh my God, I, I had a really serious health problem and now I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. And it never really seems to cause much of an issue. Like there's a certain dynamic equilibrium in the movement. And I suspect that that's been achieved with keto. Like keto has kind of reached critical mass to become a mainstream thing that's really not going to go away. So there's enough people that are into it and any kind of negative effects, I think would take long enough that it'll achieve a kind of dynamic equilibrium. I don't think it's, I would definitely recommend against people doing a ketogenic diet long term. But I can't really say that 
it's impossible that somebody could do fairly well on it long term. I'm sure there, you know, there's all kinds of people out there. When you recommend against it long term, is that because of the cortisol or is there some other factor that you think is bad? Uh, the cortisol is definitely part of it, but it's that whole system of emergency metabolism that it seems to mimic that I think is just bad to have chronically. So I, I see that system as a temporary system. Like, okay, you don't have food. Because all of those, all of the hormones, you know, cortisol, the the catecholamines, all the adrenal hormones, and uh, and all the things that stimulate them from the pituitary and everything, they're basically the same hormonal profile that you have when you're fasting or starving. Hmm. So it just seems counterintuitive that that just really looks like a short term adaptation to a lack of something. And so just from that kind of big picture perspective, it seems like a bad idea to take what really seems like a short-term emergency thing and use that as your regular day-to-day chronic uh, physiological state. And then when you get into each individual thing, like you know free fatty acids in the blood and what that does to, for example, the insulin system in addition to cortisol, you know, all of these things tend to, it seems like they actually make if you did have insulin resistance, it would make it actually worse. And you just wouldn't notice because there's such little glucose in your system anyway. Although I'm sure there's plenty of people that are on keto and still have, you know, elevated fasting glucose and, and ele- because their liver is just putting out too much from gluconeogenesis. Interesting. I haven't actually heard of that. So they're, they're producing too many carbs by gluconeogenesis. Is that kind of what you're saying? Well, that's where most uh, hyperglycemia comes from is um especially especially in the fasted state it's not so much people will clear glucose you know people that have diabetic symptoms or insulin resistant they'll clear dietary glucose slower than normal people but the thing that really keeps their glucose elevated much higher than normal people and for much longer is that the liver is putting out glucose and it doesn't stop it, it's not getting the signal that there's glucose in the blood because that signal is insulin dependent and the insulin isn't signaling correctly. Hmm. So the liver is putting out glucose and some cells are using it, but they're, it's, 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 a, it's achieved a dynamic equilibrium where the, the level is always maintained high. And why, why does that happen? Well, uh, at the very specific level, so <laughs> the, the insulin hormone according to, you know, cell receptor theory, uh, binds to a, what's it called? A dimer receptor, an insulin receptor. And the way the theory goes is that the things that cause insulin resistance change the qualities of that receptor such that it it can usually still bind insulin fairly well, but it has a bunch of other proteins. So the receptor is looking outward into the system from the cell and then points inward. So it crosses the membrane. And then when it binds insulin, it tells all these other downstream proteins, it it gives that message, and then they eventually affect a change in glucose metabolism. And that all of these things, whether it's free fatty acids or cortisol or endotoxin or inflammatory cytokines that block insulin signaling or make it uh, resistance to that signaling change that downstream system such that it doesn't signal anymore. Hmm. Do you think that theory holds weight or do you think something else might be happening? I think that it's at least partially correct. I mean, I I wouldn't be surprised if the uh, factors and qualities of the, the different um, players that, you know, if you like just Google image search, like insulin receptor, insulin resistance, and it'll have a bunch of abbreviations of proteins, you know, and all this stuff. I wouldn't be surprised if that changed a lot over the years that, oh, actually, this protein does this and not this and this one, blah, blah, blah. Hmm. Uh, but the overall story that, you know, cortisol in the presence of cortisol in a system and things like endotoxin, anything that's inflammatory, that that yeah, interferes with that signaling system. And that even that's sort of an evolved thing to do. Like in an emergency, uh, you want a lot of your tissues to 
not take up glucose and to have it for the brain and the blood cells, the red blood cells. Gotcha. That makes sense to me. Gotcha. It's just not being able to turn that off. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the brain. Uh, one of the things I wonder about is how the high amounts of cortisol kind of affect your brain. Because a lot of people who I see get into keto for a long time, they kind of get weirder and weirder. You know, they they start doing like intermittent fasting with like a one hour feeding window or, you know, fasting for days on end. Do you think that's mm-hmm. a fact? Do you think cortisol can kind of mess up your brain? I don't know if it's just the cortisol, but it, it seems like there's something, you know how some people get addicted to runner's high? Yeah. Uh, it seems to be to me when I, because I've seen videos of like Jordan Peterson's daughter. Yeah, Michaela. Yeah, Michaela, she'll have a video. Oh, you know, I'm however many hours into a fast, like a, like over 24 hours. And yeah, she kind of seems like she's having a quasi-religious like, experience where, yeah, something about her brain and her consciousness is, you know, she's almost going through like this, like ecstasy of of de- de- depriving herself of nutrition. Um <laughs> And that maybe that's on a certain level addictive, you know, like something like a runner's high where you kind of get this surge, you know, cortisol. And I imagine for these people over time, they might get more hardcore because to get that surge and that feeling, it might take more and more fasting, hmm. you know, because as, as they become keto adapted, so to speak. Yeah. One of the things I noticed when I worked in a health food store was people who got into fasting, like their first fast that they did, they loved it so much. It was like it opened their eyes. They felt amazing. They felt 10 years younger. I mean, they couldn't stop talking about fasting, but the next fast they did wasn't quite as good. And so they would say, well, instead of four days, I'm going to do seven, you know, and they kind of just kept pushing the envelope on fasting And while they were doing this, like their whole life was falling apart. You know, they were losing their job. They were uh, breaking up with their girlfriend or boyfriend. Um, And and it was all the the reasoning they gave was some kind of spiritual thing. Well, you know, this is this is the way my life is going now. My this is my new direction or something like that. Um, And so I was I was always very I felt trepidation telling people to fast because I knew it kind of had this addictive quality and objectively it always make seem to make their life worse over time yeah i my experience with those kinds of people was from forums and i used to be on uh, a forum called the raw paleo forum okay which is mostly you know people that basically just eat raw meat as their diet and yeah it's it's hard um a lot of you know, a lot of those people at the time, we're kind of normal people, and they might have had some health problems. And yeah, they try this diet, and they feel good. And then they kind of, like you said, they that initial, like, oh, I, I fixed a problem. I fixed a health problem. Like, I used to, whatever it was, like, feel crappy after eating some sort of irritation or something. And that goes away. And then over time, other problems come up. And they've convinced themselves, you know, whether it's fasting or a certain kind of diet, that that's the only thing that can help them. So they just have to do it more. Yeah. And there's really only one direction. Like if that's, if that, if that one, uh, method is not the method to solve their problem and that's the only thing that they can think of, then like you can see right there how that's going to go wrong something about like a hammer and a nail, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> One another thing I notice is is these low carb dieters, they tend to be alcohol intolerant. Do you have any idea why that might be? You know, I haven't heard about that. Um I haven't really talked to people that are like long-term low carbers and alcohol and I don't cuz I used to do low carb. I don't really remember that happening, although I guess I didn't drink enough. I mean, this is a good thing and a bad thing, but I didn't drink enough to really have a good consistent handle on what my tolerance was, if you know what I mean. Uh Like if you just do it so infrequently, you don't really know, okay, like this is how I react to this much alcohol. Like I never really got to the point where I drank enough to actually know that about myself. Hmm. Um, (laughs) But my guess would be is that their liver is much more busy doing gluconeogenesis and ketogenesis and since most alcohol is metabolized in the liver that 
you know, just those enzymes are getting less attention than in a person whose liver is allowed to kind of turn off and be more passive during the postprandial glucose feeding phase. Okay. Um, that would be my guess. Because, yeah, basically the liver is this powerhouse that does everything, you know. I mean, next to the brain, it's probably the most metabolic tissue and and muscle when it's working. But, uh, you know, at rest, the liver is is it's voracious. It takes up tons of nutrition. It kind of has first pass at everything. After it goes through the digestive system, the liver kind of gets to pick and choose before it gets to other tissues what it takes out. Um, which is why it's so flexible, because if it just took everything, then the other tissues would be chronically starved. So it has a tremendous ability to go, okay, I don't need this right now. Um, let that go to the downstream tissues. And when, yeah, when you're on a cycle, a physiological cycle where you consume a glucose meal, you know, with proteins, with some fats or whatever, your liver will kind of go, um, sort of wax on, wax off. Like when it's, when you're fed, it's kind of quiet and it's, it's taking things up and it's not really putting that much out. It's putting out, um, some of the fat and cholesterol that you ate and cholesterol that it produced in chylomicrons and then in the lipoproteins. Okay. But you know, it's not doing gluconeogenesis. It's not, it's not releasing a lot of stuff. It doesn't have to do as much. And then, yeah, if you fast for a while, then it's, it's, um, I guess exocrine and exporting activity goes up. Whereas people that are never eating carbohydrates, the liver never gets that uh, take in glucose and sort of be quiet in that way. Thing, it's just always on. Interesting. Um, so that's my guess. Another thing I see with keto people is they excrete more salt. Uh, do you know why that is? No, I don't know why that. I guess it would be you know how they, like the whole keto flu. Like you get on a keto diet and you have the keto flu and you have to drink electrolytes because you're basically peeing out all your electrolytes. Have you heard of that? I have. You know, I thought the keto flu was just feeling like crap. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it had that specific peeing symptom. Yeah, I mean, it's probably just that, you know, I mean, how are you going to, because, you know, cortisol and all those adrenal hormones, they're turned so high up that that's also how you regulate the salt supply. So I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised at that at all. Okay. So I one of the ways I think keto kind of sets you up for failure, and you tell me what you think about this is your body kind of naturally craves carbohydrates, right? Um, it mm. isn't like this broken mechanism that you're craving carbohydrates that you have to willpower down. So like, let's say you lose this weight on keto and you're at your ideal weight. So you relax a bit on the keto. Uh, you eat more carbs because you obviously naturally crave them. You gain some of the weight back and you think, oh, I gained weight because I included these carbs back in my diet. You know, I have to get back on keto to lose weight. So you end up getting yourself into this kind of yo-yo cycle of gaining and losing weight, uh, which is definitely not healthy. But you stay in that yo-yo cycle because you don't understand that your slip-ups on your diet are when you're tired and you don't have the willpower to kind of suppress your body's urges for carbohydrates. So mm -hmm. like, I don't know, willpower, it's, it's really an interesting subject because like over the years, I've found that any kind of diet or supplement regime that takes willpower, it almost always fails eventually. Like you have a few stressful moments at work or, or someone dies in your family or you break up or whatever and your regime just goes to total crap because, you know, you don't have any more willpower. And the one thing, the one thing I, I will say this about keto, I think that they get right is the whole insulin and its connection with fat storage. Now, like I said earlier, I think the solution is you know, antibiotic herbs and substances, uh, that'd be way better for lowering insulin resistance than cutting carbs. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. What do you, what do you think of that? Yeah, I definitely had that issue. I had that issue, the willpower issue and the yo-yo. <clears throat> like I didn't, I never really had a problem with weight. Um, I didn't come at diet and nutrition from that place, you know, of wanting to lose weight. It was more just something I was interested in when, you know, when I was on, like a vegetarian, well, most vegetarian wasn't that bad because there's all kinds of crap you can eat, but, uh, <laughs> like a vegan diet and more hardcore variants of vegan diets, I would, I would cheat on my diet. And when I would cheat, it wasn't like a small, you know, thing. It would be like 3000 calories of just whatever was, whatever I could obtain until I felt sick <laughs> that wasn't <laughs> on my diet. 
And when I was on a low carb diet and when I was mostly doing like raw meat, I would have, um, it wasn't as bad. I think that my body was getting a little bit more of what it needed eating mostly meat. Um, but at the same time, I was never really hundred percent. I did do, I think two weeks of nothing but raw meat. And, uh, that was weird. I felt really weird. Um, like my, my body just felt weird. I guess I was, it was probably like keto flu or whatever. My, my sleep felt differently. Um, like in a weird way, it's kind of hard to explain, but, uh, yeah, yeah. When I would like taste a carb, you know, it's like something wakes up in you and it is hard to, I guess that's why, you know, a lot of people like propagandists will say, oh, you know, sugar, it's like cocaine because look, the same part of the brain lights up, you know, when you like, as if yeah. the brain saying this thing is good implies that it's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I remember one time I was in a conference and people were saying they were kind of hinting or, or making this rhetorical suggestion that sugar is bad because it's kind of hacking into the cocaine receptor <laughs> or the, the cocaine response, I guess, like, you know, neurological response instead of what seems to me the more obvious conclusion, which is cocaine and other drugs are kind of hacking the normal food reward response that you get from consuming, you know, like sugar or that makes a like lot all of the sense. macronutrients. <laughs> that makes much more sense. Right. Because why would we have a system set up to respond to drugs that haven't been around for that long? <laughs> like, I mean, cocaine's been around for like, I guess a few centuries or maybe several centuries, but certainly like synthetic methamphetamines and things like that are pretty novel. And uh, it would be very weird if we had, you know, quote, a receptor, unquote, for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, or, or just a, a, a response. And then it wasn't, you know, something that is just happens to induce a brain activity similar to uh, maybe like an extreme food reward. And that's why it feels so good or something like that. Yeah. So one of the things you mentioned before, and I want to get to it real quick before we have to uh, end it, but uh, you mentioned insulin and kind of how it's a cyclical um, hormone, whereas cortisol is just kind of always suppressed. And, you know, the people in the keto camp kind of switch that around. Can you maybe just talk a bit about insulin? Like, have you found anything interesting about insulin lately uh, that might be outside of the box or anything like that? Actually... Uh, <laughs> about a year ago. So I have on my laptop, I have a pretty chaotic, um, Chrome tabs situation. I have a lot of tabs open. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. And I was actually explaining this to my girlfriend yesterday cause she was like, oh, it's so crazy cause so many things in your life are kind of regimented and then your Chrome looks like a disaster, but there's a system, everything to the left of my work email tab is kind of long-term storage nice. <laughs> and everything to the right. So anyway, somewhere on the left of my work email tab, there's a tab for, it was a popular article, you know, like one of those websites like um, Science Weekly or I don't know what they're called, but you know, websites where a, per, a journalist, maybe even a scientist who's being a journalist will write about a science article. Yes. So it's not primary literature. Yeah, so one of those types of websites um, had a article that I wanted to write about or make a video about or something on a theoretical level, which is it. It was about ants, and it said insulin. Ants were able to evolve their sort of eusocial system of interaction with insulin, and that something about the way it 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 interacts in in their uh, brains allows them to sort of communicate and have the social system that they have. Okay. And I forget a lot of the particulars, but what was really interesting was that things like insulin and a lot of these proteins, hormonal proteins and the, the steroidal, you know, uh, lipid based protein, uh, hormones they're you know, they're really, they're, they're in all sort of organisms, you know, and they have a, a long history. And it seems like they get copy and pasted to do different things. Like in one animal, you know, 
it it'll do this and another it'll do that and then maybe in something totally different like an insect it'll have quite a bit of uh like the homology between say the genetic sequence of our insulin and ant insulin is probably quite a bit different but it's close enough that you can tell it's insulin uh it'll do sort of a totally different thing and i'm not exactly sure what i want to say about that except that uh, it's, it's sort of this old system and all these things are really old systems and we should be thinking of them in terms of, you know, what they're, what they're intended to do and, you know, not really thinking of them on a sort of pharmacological basis, like as if they're like foreign bodies, you know, like, oh, my insulin is high and insulin is bad and like my body is trying to hurt me with this insulin or something like that. So that's really all, all the <laughs> interesting thing I have to say about <laughs> insulin. I mean, I've never really studied insulin on the protein level. It's, it's kind of interesting. Like the only biochemistry I know about it is that it gets cut up into three pieces and the middle piece gets just kind of broken down and taken away. And then the two original pieces are connected. So it's kind of like, um, it's put together in a in a weird way, and I suspect that the ability of insulin to be cleaved and arranged in that way allows it to have different effects um, and be sort of biologically flexible for different organisms. Wow, yeah, that's kind of interesting. So you, I think you're basically saying, and you tell me if this is right, that a lot of times insulin is treated as like this bad guy, um, but it has such a long history with humans that it's not just there by mistake. Your body has an intelligence and it's trying to use it in the correct way. And so focusing on insulin as the bad guy is probably not as productive as focusing on, I don't know, environmental factors or something else. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I guess people could flip it around and say like, oh, well, you think cortisol is the bad guy. And actually, I don't really think anything is the bad guy. Like even, you know, estrogen or, or something like that, that a lot of people think is the bad guy. I mean, people, um, if you have a pituitary damage and you can't produce any cortisol, uh, people die from that like pretty, pretty quickly. Like they're, uh, they have trouble with their, uh, cardiovascular system and just kind of keeping the vessel tone. Hmm. So yeah, these things are needed. It's kind of understanding that this thing, it's obviously there for a reason. Obviously it's not some sort of like, um, I don't know, like a, like a devil kind of uh yeah, it's the, you know the almost guy. like in a biblical framework like a, yeah there's a, that's that's kind of like a silly way to think of it, it the way I, really it's like the body you know there's a certain tragic uh quality to the body in the sense that we're all going to die eventually you know mm. wow this is <laughs> and turning, so turning dark but let's do it right so when you're thinking of these things i think a lot of people are thinking and I've seen people say this explicitly. Oh, well, um, people die because, like, as if that's an aberration or that, and, you know, when, you know, just think of it like, okay, you know, you have to, you're a child and then you grow and the metabolism that's causing that. Like, for example, if you had the same growth factors as an adult that you did as a child in certain tissues, um, you'd call that cancer, you know? So, you know, there's kind of a, a time and a place for all these things and a season. And we're, you know, I think a lot of people sort of intellectually want to remove themselves from like meat space <laughs> uh, and like overly intellectualize things like, oh, this is good, this is bad. Um, when really it's like our body is in, and you know, really I blame uh, when you open up a, a medical textbook or a physiology textbook, there's all these cartoon drawings and there's static images. Um, and so much of what we look at is a static image, like um, a lot of microscopy, electron microscopy, for example, to really look at the smallest things. That's a dead cell. It's been all beat up and covered with like metal so that the electrons can visualize it. Hmm. I think that really messes with people's minds it, when, you know, if you look at, for example, like in a light microscope that's not that powerful and allows cells to live like a, a moving cell. And to sort of try to imagine like, okay, so in that thing that's vibrating so quickly on that, on that stage under the microscope, you know, all that stuff is there, like glucose and everything. And, and, uh, you know, depending, <clears throat> depending on what kind of cell it is, insulin, whatever, 
And those things are getting made and broken down and moved around really, really fast. Um, so, you know, thinking of it like as a process rather than this static image, like, okay, there's insulin, that's bad. Or Yeah, I get you. So basically in this podcast, we've, you know, kind of talked a little bit about keto from the 30,000 foot view, I'd say. Uh, if, right. if you were, I mean, I know you don't have a practice or you're not a health coach or anything like that, but you know, if you had a friend who was doing keto and, and was doing really well on it, I mean, would you encourage him to keep doing it? Would you, would you say, you know, this might be good for a while, but get off of it? Or, you know, what would, what would you say? Um, I would strongly encourage him to, uh, make sure that he's getting blood work done on a regular basis and to really pay attention to get a full thyroid panel, uh, and to make sure that, you know, T3 and T4 doesn't go down over time because I believe that's really one of the biggest things that you'll see over time go down. So it appears that thyroid production in the liver is pretty much glucose dependent. Hmm. And regardless of other health factors, your thyroid production will go down if there's if the liver just doesn't have as much glycogen in it. Um, it's just kind of like a okay, we don't have glycogen, don't make as much thyroid because we don't want, you know, as much of a metabolic rate. Yeah, those kinds of objective measures I would try to encourage because um, I think that might help because um, I'm I'm not really in the business of telling people like, oh, this thing that you're doing is bad. Uh, that doesn't really work. And yeah, it's just, I mean, I, I did that for many, many years. And I did that specifically when I was, um, giving people advice that I think is bad advice now. So <laughs> that experience has like humbled me in the area of giving, you know, declarative uh, advice to other people when they're not asking for it. But yeah, I would just give them maybe things like blood work or when, the, if they feel cold, you know, after eating or in the morning more than usual, give them things to watch out for like that, that are pretty objective that I would think would be a hint that their health is, is going down on that diet and that would maybe help them psychologically kind of accept that, you know, cause th that's really the problem is if you have somebody, especially if they did lose like, you know, 50 pounds and they feel a lot better, it's going to take a lot for them to psychologically switch and think, okay, maybe this isn't like healthy for me long-term. So yeah, I would just, I would just do things like that. Just kind of suggest, oh, okay, well, you know, just look out for this and, you know, it'd be really good if you did this and this, and maybe even just say that as a general thing and not talk about, because this is going to show that your diet's bad, hmm. but just a thing to, to look at. And they'll get those results. And I suspect, you know, somebody that's on a strict keto diet for years, even just one year, they're probably going to have, uh, they're probably going to notice like, oh, wow, you know, I, I do kind of feel cold. Like well, I used to feel more warm after eating or in the morning, you know, or even if they take their body temperature, oh, you know, it's actually kind of gone down like half a degree. Uh, my thyroid numbers have gone down a little bit, you know, things like that. Uh, and then you can kind of use that like as a, okay, you know, here's what that could mean. That's actually really good advice. Like I, I did low carb too for a while. I mean, I'm a type one diabetic, so I can't go zero carb. Um, but I did mm -hmm. low carb for a while and it was an absolute hell. I mean, I had terrible insomnia. I couldn't sleep for more than a couple hours at a time before getting up and going to the bathroom and, and had bad anxiety too. So, I mean, I, I get that because I went through hell until I finally was like, you know, maybe I should add more carbs into my diet. And it, just took a while to kind of break through that mental carbs are evil mindset mm -hmm. so anyway well i don't really have much more but uh it's not really about keto um but i know you've done a ton of experimentation with your diet and supplements and all that like you've been talking about so what are you into right now what are you doing got any practices that are cool yeah uh i just started let's see what do i do I've been drinking orange juice again. I hadn't been drinking orange juice for a while. Um, in this in this whole viral age that we're in, uh, <laughs> I decided to experiment with vitamin C because I really never took. I'm actually I'm not that experienced with supplements. Um, I was I was never really a big supplement person. Okay. Even when I was on like vegan diets and stuff, I mean I was really young then. 
in my early 20s. Uh, I, I probably took B12 and that was about it. But uh, yeah, I've been taking some vitamin C, getting a glass of orange juice, dumping in glycine, uh, sometimes some collagen powder as well, methylene blue, some sugar. Oh, wow. Uh, extra sugar and a little bit of salt. Okay. And <laughs> drinking that down and then usually also having some coffee you know, with milk and sugar in the morning. And I'm pretty much always, I always have a container with some liver that I cooked and I'll throw just a few pieces of that on, on a meal, usually once a day or every other day. Uh, and yeah, other than that, I kind of eat like a normal diet. I mean, recently I haven't been going to the store that much and I'll take maybe like a canned soup, you know, like Amy's, you know, yeah, that brand? The organic brand. They're good. Yeah. I'll just dump that in a saucepan and then I'll add say some meat that I cooked, like I'll cook a bunch of meat and put it in a glass container in the fridge and add some liver and stuff like that and heat that up. Maybe dump in some collagen powder and dissolve that. And that'll be a meal. Nice. Well, how is the orange juice, methylene blue sugar cocktail working for you? It's good. It's good. Um, Do you notice anything? No, it just feels good. You know, it feels, uh, it feels like, um, you know, like I kind of get going in the morning and, you know, like I, I, I feel like I'm pretty much like I get up and cause I'm not a morning person. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, anything where I can kind of get up and, you know, drink something, eat something and then sort of feel like, okay, I'm now I am, uh, able to do things. That's always a good sign for me. Nice. It's really easy for me to forget to eat in the morning too. Oh, so I don't know if you have that problem, but no, I don't. So it's, yeah, it's best if I have like a, because I can eat, like, I actually, my, my um, I think my metabolism or something, it kind of speeds up at night. It's sort of weird. Like, I get hungrier at night. So, for me, uh, having sort of a, like, a just a little routine, like, okay, I have this weird orange juice thing, I have some coffee, and then I'll have a small meal. And after that, I kind of just eat as the day goes on. But it's always good for me to have, like, a specific routine in the morning, or else I'll forget to eat until, like noon hmm. yeah i'm I'm pretty regimented i mean with the whole blood sugar thing i i pretty much do the same thing every day and that's, uh, that's, that's breakfast right. so yeah well before we wrap up is there anything else you want to cover i don't know not really i mean <laughs> obviously like this whole coronavirus thing is going on but i don't <laughs> you know i will say one thing about yeah. that i think i'm actually gonna uh email my boss because he used to work with heme proteins but bacterial okay. ones and I saw an interesting article. Um, I shared it in the Ray Pete fans Facebook group. Um, there were some threads about it where some people are claiming that the virus knocks heme iron out of hemoglobin. Yes, I've read that. Yes, and that's what causes the hypoxia, which explains, if true, explains why ventilation is so useless because it's not. It doesn't matter, you know, how much oxygen is pushed into the lungs if there's not enough, um, you know, intact hemoglobin to, to, uh, grab it and move it. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was interesting. I also thought, you know, maybe, uh, some of the old, like we have a bunch of structures, um, at work of heme proteins and stuff and be interesting to look at that. I don't know if I could build, do you know the uh, program PyMol? No. It's a biochemistry program. Yeah, it's like this old thing that if you take biochemistry, they kind of make you use it. And it's really boring. But uh, if you actually have a protein you work with, it's it's interesting because it, it builds the proteins. Like you, you just give the amino acid sequence <clears throat> and it puts it together based on electrostatic rules of the amino acids interacting with each other. Okay. And so it kind of can predict what a protein would look like based on the sequence. And then you can also put in confirmed structures that have been crystallized of proteins and then it kind of knows exactly what's going on anyway you can sort of look at things and go okay so here's where this is and i guess you know oh the vi- maybe the virus like connects on this part i guess that's how people make a lot of drugs although i it, there's a lot of issues with that kind of biochemistry too where they'll make a drug and it'll sort of do something and they'll be like okay i know that it did this exact thing and and they don't really know that's yeah, it's really hard to confirm that kind of stuff. And I suspect a lot of drugs just sort of get the result they want. 
and they can kind of make an argument that it probably is doing this exact mechanism. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if like, as that science gets more and more sophisticated, a lot of these things, people are like, oh, actually it works this way, you know? Yeah, yeah for sure. All right, man. Well, thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate you uh, spending a little time with me today. Yeah, it was fun. Oh, before we go, what do you, you have a podcast. What are you, what are you into? Like, what are you doing right now? Uh, so I have, sometimes I talk to this guy, Steve Businger about nutrition and stuff and our, we have a YouTube channel, Nutrition Deconstructed. And then I have my own YouTube channel, Nutrichronology. Okay. I'll put both of those in the show notes. Um, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, you kind of go really a lot deeper into biochemistry. Uh, in the nutrition deconstructed, we talk, we kind of talk, it's sort of like, um, almost postmodernism, but for science, <laughs> like about, uh, some of these meta narratives, like what I was saying about, you know, people and their psychology around their diet, you know, whether it's like keto or something and how these concepts kind of interact on a psychological basis. We talk about a lot of that stuff and like the culture of science and philosophy of science. Interesting. I guess it's like, yeah, it's like a philosophy of science. And then in the nutrichronology, I'm not sure exactly what that's going to be. Like I have a lot of old blog posts from when I used to have a website that I want to just turn into video essays. And I thought that was going to be really easy. And then I did one of them and it's like an eight minute video, but I put so many images on there that the editing took like hours and hours and hours. Oh man. (laughs) Um, so I really want to do that and I want to make interesting things. Like I want to make, actually I want to make a video as a challenge to keto people. This is the next video I want to make where I'm going to basically explain to them why they use carbohydrates to work out. Um, and they, they, there's nothing they can do about it because the amount of energy that gets produced from fatty acids or ketones, basically anything except glucose just isn't, can't deliver enough power for uh exercise that is like maybe 70% or more of VO2 max. So anything like sprinting, weightlifting, anything like that, no matter how keto you are, no matter how little little carbs you eat, your muscles are using carbs. Gotcha. Um to do that and you know, I wanted to explain like on, on like a on an electrical power level, you know, like okay, this is how fast these different, um, cause basically glycolysis, you know, the fastest is you got your creatine phosphate and that gets broken down immediately in muscles. And that's like a few seconds of energy. And then you got your, uh, glycogen breakdown and then, you know, fatty acids and full oxidation of glucose and all that takes so long that you really can't do like, that's when you get basically fatigue, you know, as you can't really do something like say weightlifting or sprinting on those fuels uh, aerobically. Interesting. All right, cool, man. Well, I'll, I'll have those, uh, those channels in the show notes. Um, but thanks for coming on, bro. It was fun. So I really appreciate Kyle coming on. Uh, if I could sum up what I took from this episode, it is that ketosis is an emergency system the body uses. Uh, for some people with metabolic problems, you know, that system's going to work great, uh, for a while, Long-term, it seems risky, and I think most people find that keto long-term is really not sustainable. The other thing that he said that I thought was really interesting is that ketosis, these keto diets, they don't really solve the underlying insulin resistance problem. You know, you're just cutting out the insulin system by not eating carbs and you're ramping up the cortisol so you don't have to deal with the metabolic problems that being insulin resistant uh, is. And so, it's, it's almost like papering over the problem a little bit. And for some people, that is what they need to get out of, you know, whatever um, trap that they're in. Uh, but for other people, it's it's not so great. So it was a really balanced view by, by Kyle. Uh, so I, I, I appreciated what he had to say quite a bit. Now, as for the podcast, I'm going to be shifting the structure. So for the last year, we have done an episode probably every week. Uh, with a couple weeks missed here and there. Uh, We had a mix of interviews in there, but most episodes were Brian and I doing our own thing. I'm going to shift the show to doing more interviews and less me and Brian episodes. So after a year of doing, you know, weekly research, I'm kind of 
I'm running out of low-hanging fruit here, and the research is getting more complex and taking me longer. And I also just, I don't want to rehash what we've already done either. See, when I when I started the podcast, uh, it was really, it was a discipline for me, you know, to write and research these episodes every week. And I knew, you know, that I had somewhere around 60 topics that I wanted to talk about. Now, those topics are mostly done. And I don't really want to just put out fluff every week just so I can say, you know, I have a weekly podcast like, hey, let's talk about Nettle this week. Let's talk about Echinacea. Like, I really want to give you episodes that are high quality and engaging. So going forward, uh, there's going to be less episodes with me and Brian, but the episodes we will do will be higher quality and more focused. Uh, They're not going to be just so much me and Brian chilling out and talking about Star Wars as much. Uh, The new release schedule will probably go to one to three episodes a month instead of doing four. And I was also thinking of changing the podcast name to something that was more easily searchable in podcast engine. Like you tell me what you think about this, but a friend of mine basically said, hey, you know, you can't really find quacks if you're looking up health podcasts, you know, change it to something like natural health hacks or something just so that it's easily findable. And I thought that was a good idea, but I don't know. So... Feel free to let me know your thoughts about this change by sending me a message through uh, the website or emailing me at quackspodcast at gmail.com. And again, as always, if you gained value from this show, help us out uh, by liking and sharing with your friends. It really goes a long way to help us get out there. So thanks, everyone. It's good to talk to you again, and I will talk to you soon. Be well.